Hey everyone, this is Jeffrey Wu with the Health Via Modern Nutrition HVMN podcast and super excited to have back a regular guest, Dr. Molly Malouf. It's been a long time. How have you been? I'm good, Jeff. Great to see you. Yeah, I, I've been following along on social, but I mean, just given the pandemic, just have not been able to actually hang out. Where are you in the world? What's going on? How was the last year? Well, I left San Francisco at the end of 2019 because I was just like so fed up after the fires after every every year, just so many fires. And there was also fires in LA at the time. And I was just like, I can't do any more of this. I need a break from California. So I went on a sabbatical and went to Maui, ended up working on a book proposal. Um, and I, you know, was like really healthy while I was there and I was really happy. And then I saw this pandemic was starting and I was like, huh, that's really weird. I was just thinking that we were overdue for a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd actually been talking about it in San Francisco in like August of last, like 2019. I was talking to my friends about how I'd been researching viruses and I was like, it's really weird. We haven't seen a pandemic in a while. It's been like a while. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we had a plague next. And they were like, oh, just don't say that. So when it happened, I was like, I really didn't want to believe it. I was kind of sad because I was like, oh, this is not good. Like, this is a crazy time. And so I ended, ended up quarantining in LA and then going and spending a lot of my time during the pandemic with my family amongst a few of our homes that we have in different states. And like, to be honest with you, it's one of the most productive years of my life. <laughs> I had like, so much good came of it for me, but I'm a, I'm very fortunate, I guess. And I, I, a lot of women have families and kids. I'm still single and, and, and I don't have any children. So I had a, a bit of an advantage, I guess. But I have to say, I've been, it's been really sad to see how the pandemic's affected a lot of women. Um, so I, definitely for the women out there, I'm feeling, I'm hearing you. And I'm just like, I want to respect the fact that like, even though I am talking about some of my own success, I know a lot of women have really, really struggled. It wasn't an easy year for me. I mean, I definitely had my own issues come up. There was, it was certainly a challenging year and health is the ability to adapt and self-manage in adversity. And I think I did a pretty decent job at maintaining my health in the midst of a pandemic, but it wasn't the easiest thing to do because I was in the Midwest for a lot of it. And I got this totally new realization of how spoiled I was living in California and how actually how much harder it is to be healthy in different states that don't have the same kind of access to food that we do on the coasts. So it brought me a lot of knowledge. I learned a ton and I've actually been working on a book since I got a, a book deal with Harper Wave. Okay. So the book, the book proposal that I was working on a year ago, I'm selling a year later. And so I'm stoked about, I'm stoked to, stoked to finish writing that. And then um, during the pandemic, I got really interested in the, in the psychedelic revolution because I'd been studying psychedelics for a long time, like since my early 20s. So I started a podcast on the app Clubhouse called the Psychedelic News Hour with Dave Rabin, who's another doctor, and then just joined this group called Audio Collective, which is a group of like influencers on, on Clubhouse. And we're, there's all sorts of cool activities going on in that space. So audio has been a bigger interest of mine, too. And then from there, I, I started a supplement company. I think I'm going to think, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to sell it. I'm not really, it was a supplement company designed to make supplements for COVID, but um, I've realized that I'd rather partner with supplement companies and like work on my own. So that one, I don't know what I'm, I'm going to do with that. But <laughs> anyway, um, aside from that, I've had, you know, my, my practice has been really great and I've been advising tons of companies. I said I'd stop advising so many companies, but somehow I still managed to advise like 15 companies. So it's been a really good year. Like, and I'm, I can't tell you what's coming next, but there is a very big announcement coming soon with a company in the psychedelic space that I will be working with to create something that's pretty game changing. So 
can't wait to tell you about that, but I haven't signed my term sheet yet. So <laughs> exciting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's one thing that has been interesting on our uh, podcast as well. We've had Dennis McKenna and uh, Brian Morescu who wrote the oh, yeah, Brian's a super amazing. fascinating book about the, the history and the potential connection with some of the Lucian and uh, Greek oh, yeah. mythology with the psychedelics. So definitely, <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, just like if you're a curious human and you're interested in human performance, I think it's, it'd be very incurious not to like at least dive into the psychedelic realm, just given also just the therapeutic potential, right? There's like legit yeah. clinical research coming out of John Hopkins where these are very beneficial yeah. for certain indications. So yeah. you know, I'm very hopeful that some of this stuff as it gets more proven out becomes decriminalized and gets legalized. I mean, I think that right. hopefully is a, a path that our society can go on. Well, amongst the many things that I was doing, I did develop a very lengthy sublingual ketamine protocol and started using it with clients during the pandemic. And I was amazed at how much it helped people cope with the chaos. Like it's, it's a weekly protocol and it's three months long and it's just unbelievable what you can do with, with just switch. It's almost like it flips a switch back on in your brain and it can make you feel like everything's going to be okay. And I think that feeling a lot of people have forgotten because they've been so stressed so consistently. And so I am a big believer that there's a, there's definitely, you can have a healthy relationship with psychedelics that's productive. And when combined with therapy, you get the most amazing results with people. Like I've, I've, I've had suicidal patients like completely turn their life around. I've had people who are no longer depressed. I've had people who've like managed to like really really come out of burnout, really bad burnout. And so there's a lot more to the story than just depression and anxiety. There's like, I really believe that psychedelics are going to have a role in enhancing human potential and really helping people reach their full potential. So it's like, you know, it, even, even the military is interested in this. Like I read a paper written by a, a Marine that was about, it may have been a Marine or special forces. It was about how they think that they should be using psychedelics to enhance human performance in the military. And I'm like, well, yeah. And also everything maps is doing with with veterans and ptsd like it we need these medicines to help people heal and also to to move through some of the hardest most difficult experiences of their lives 100 percent. yeah i mean just even from the ptsd veterans use case i mean you can i, I mean yeah let's just talk about it right like i think there's so many sure. ways to just like slice up this conversation but like since we're just talking about psychedelics i mean let's you know, what was your personal journey down that path? And oh man, where did it come from? I don't know. I mean, that's just more like intellectual curiosity. I, mean, I can definitely, I can definitely talk about my own personal stuff. I first got interested in it from an academic place. I was in college working in a history and philosophy library. And I was like, whoa, there's this whole section on the history of drugs. I've got to read every book here. And it was pretty small. It was like this book, this big. But I checked all these books out and I read them and I was just astonished at how little. I knew about this space at the time and I was too afraid to try the drugs because I was like, oh, I don't want to lose control. But when I finally did mushrooms in my early 20s, I remember it being this like totally transformative, like I was just, they, they say it's ineffable. The mystical, mystical experience is like an ineffable experience, but like I literally had no words to describe how, what I had just been through. And so what I'm really optimistic about is the fact that these drugs won't always be taken at concerts and music festivals, really uncontrolled in environments that are really unpredictable, but also through, you know, licensed doctors where you can go into a clinic and have this like beautiful experience. 
and feel like you actually got medicine that, you know, was w- that made you healthier and that, and from doctors that actually cared about you. Yeah. Like not to say that the healthcare system doesn't have those, but a lot of the times when you're in healthcare, you really feel like you have to be on guard because you don't know what they're going to be doing to you. You don't know what treatment you're going to get. It's like a lot of it's very paternalistic still. Whereas psychedelics is very much about the like equal relationship between you and your doctor on the same level playing field. They're helping you. You're there participating in the process. And to me, it's just like really, really optimistic about, I mean, it's just, I have massive optimism for America because if we can get ourselves out of this egocentric, overly individualistic culture, that's making everyone miserable because everyone feels so disconnected and alone if we can move away from that culture towards a culture of connection and caring about people and, and, and really communities, you know, coming together, that is going to make everything different for everyone's mental health. And like, I think psychedelics are just a tool in the toolbox to get us there. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, we've been friends for a long time now. And was there a catalyst where it went from kind of an academic interest to, hey, I mean, it sounds like you're spending a lot of personal, you know, work time, career time now. Yeah, implementing it. I mean, just from like going from like intermittent fasting, concierge practice, advising companies, continuous glucose yeah. monitoring, right? Like, I'm curious, was there like a catalyst of like, boom, like this is where I want to like really focus? So, first off, I still use CGM with every single client. I advise Levels, this amazing company in the space. I'm still deeply passionate about metabolic health. But when I really started digging into the reasons why people were unhealthy, it was because I was always trying to ask myself, like, why are people so unhealthy in America? What is really underneath this? And I'm always trying to just peel back the layers of this onion of like, what is health about? I realized that there was just so many people who, even if you tell them, even if you show them what it happens when they eat the wrong foods, there's still this subconscious behavior happening when people are stressed, where they reach for the cookie and they eat it because they know, even though they know it's not good for them, even though they know they shouldn't eat it. There's, there's like this subconscious behavior that's embedded in our brains and our bodies that's really largely based on our life stress and trauma that we haven't dealt with. So you, if you talk to, I talk to any single person I've ever talked to who struggles with obesity, there's always some story of like something that really traumatized them in their life. And it's not always, I mean, people think it's, oh, they're lazy oh, or this or that. But even if you watch these shows, like my 500 pound life or whatever, you see that each of these people, they always have some sort of serious trauma. And so I'm like, okay, so why don't we try to work on the trauma in the subconscious instead of just focusing on the data and the decision-making, which almost everybody knows that we, they need to exercise, they need to eat right, they need to eat more vegetables, they need to have more protein. Like Everybody knows this stuff, but they're not doing it. And the reason why they're not doing it is because most people are stuck in this like automatic behavior where they're so stressed out 24-7 that they don't have the capacity to make the right decisions. And I'm like, okay, so how do we get underneath into the actual core problem of this person's life? And so I got really passionate about psychedelics because I started realizing that they were becoming legal. And I was like, oh, wow, I can actually work with ketamine. Like I can legally work as a ketamine assisted therapy doctor. And that is crazy. So I started, you know, kind of getting into that facet because I was like, well, I need to have this facet of my practice because there's things that like, and that, like, I was so focused on biology. I was so focused on just like the actual biology and the data for so long. And I realized I'd kind of been missing the spiritual, the psycho spiritual component of health. And like, whether or not you believe in God, 
it doesn't matter to me. I, I believe that if you have a sense of purpose, if you have a sense of meaning, if you have core values, if you have your own morality, like there, that's a spiritual part of your life. Like connecting with nature is a spiritual experience for a lot of people. So it doesn't really matter to me whether you believe in God. I think that you, I think people need a sense of meaning and purpose or belief in something greater than themselves in order to make sense of life. And so that became this like, aha moment. And I was like, oh shit, I should really be like caring about this stuff more. And I'd also done some, some soul searching myself because I had been working on a company in glucose monitoring that was funded by a large company in Japan and like was funded, we fundraised. And I ended up walking away from the opportunity because it just wasn't the right business deal for me. And I was, I was like really frustrated because I'd worked so hard on this project and I ended up getting kind of hosed, like hosed in the end with this, with equity. And I was like, no, not another situation like this in Silicon Valley. This sucks. So I basically was like, universe, can you just give me like a taste of enlightenment? I don't want a full enlightenment yet, but like I'll have a taste of it. And then I started, and then like I got invited to this, this meditation retreat, which ended up being like the most psychedelic experience that I, I'd say in the top, top five most psychedelic experiences I've ever had. And I ended up doing this Vipassana style meditation. That meditation, was like, not, not. It was like a, so, so it was like, is this just meditation? It was meditation, breath work, and like lots of, lots of, there was a, definitely a lot of yin yoga. So it was, there was somatics involved, but the breath work, the meditation and the, and the, you know, sort of somatic yin yoga combined with nature. And then it happened to be in this like beautiful mansion that had like sauna and cold plunge and steam shower and like all these health amenities. So like super great for bioenergetic capacity, right? Like massively great health experience overall. I just came out, I, I ended up being like, Oh my God. Like we think psychedelics are something cool. Like try microdosing when you meditate. Like, <laughs> and I ended up, um, I ended up having this like totally ecstatic experience and just being like, Whoa, that was a taste of enlightenment. So I decided to go back to one of these meditation retreats. And then the second time around, it was like my, it was like literally like my face in the mud. It felt like all of my ego was being excavated. And I had to see like all the parts of myself that I didn't want to look at. And it was serious shadow work. And I was like going through these cycles of like going in back into my life, going back into meditation, going back into my life, going back into meditation. And then by the end of the year, I was like, okay, I need a break from San Francisco. My life is about to change dramatically. And I just need to like ground somewhere because there, there something is happening. So things are changing. And I'll, I'll admit even before the meditation started. Okay. I'll tell you the real story. So that all happened. But before that happened, midsummer last, like July of 2019, I, the, the summer when I was studying viruses and I was getting really into like um, chronic fatigue, I was like super obsessed with mitochondrial biogenesis and mitophagy, right? So I was doing a bunch of exercise and fasting, combining the two. And I'll, we'll talk about fasting later because my opinions have changed a little bit for women. So we'll talk about that later. But um, to go back to the whole story of like this sort of genesis of this transformation that my life has taken, I like, I went to this, I went and fasted for three days with a friend of mine that I kind of thought I was on a date with, but it turns out it wasn't a date. Cause like, well, it kind of was a date cause he introduced me to his mom, but like nothing happened anyway. So I'm, I'm fasting for three days in paradise in Sonoma. And after that happened, but there was like all this sexual tension building. And then I was like, Oh crap. There's like, no, there's no, this is not happening. This is, this guy's not, in, not into me. Cause like he was just like not paying attention to me at all. And I was like, fine, whatever. So I ended up, I ended up kind of going inward and doing this, this, this fast. And then I, after the fast was over, I had this amazing meal and uh, Sonoma. And then the next day went and did sauna and like high intensity interval training and ended up just being like, just like 
you know, all the, all the mitochondria were just being regenerated. And I just felt like I was literally like fluorescent glowing with, with energy. So I go to this, um, dinner this with my community and everyone's like, geez, what are you doing? I'm like, I just fasted for three days and then had this great meal and all this, did all this exercise and sauna. They're like, wow, whatever you're doing, I need to do. And I'm like, look, it's, you need to, you need to prepare for this kind of thing. Three days of fasting is not for everybody. Like, unless you're kind of prepared for it. So anyway, I go back to my room that night, my, my, my apartment. And I, I remember laying in bed and I like totally just like started envisioning clinics where we could give people MDMA and like legally give people psychedelics. And it would be like this, this, like, I had this like total vision of this beautiful clinic that's overlooking the ocean. And, and then I started having this like full body energetic experience that I can only describe as like a full body orgasm. And I was like, what is this? Because I, I wasn't touching myself or anything. And so I started reading about these things called like Kundalini awakenings. And I was like, oh, this is, all, this is like some spiritual bullshit that I am not like, I am not into because I don't have time to have my life turn upside down. And because all my hippie friends had told me about this could happen. And I was like, I don't believe in that shit. And then it happened to me. And I was like, reading all these Indian texts, like, oh, this happens to people in India when they meditate a lot and when they like do all this fasting. And I was like, oh shit, my life's about to change completely. So that was actually when it all started, but I kind of fought it a little bit. And so I started going to meditation retreats in order to like figure out what was going on. Cause like, honestly, ever since that moment, like it's honestly like I have had both, I've had like a lot more energy than, than even before. And even, and I do a lot of stuff to optimize energy, but it's almost like I have this deep sense of knowing that I'm on this right path and that like, I'm meant to be a part of this movement, you know? And so, yeah, it's that, that really started in 2019. And then I went to Maui, then the, the, the COVID thing hit. And then I started a company and started actually a few companies in the last year. I like incorporate everything, incorporated everything I'm doing into separate companies. And so it's just been this like massive transformational life experience where I've learned a ton. And I realized that like my job is to basically be a leader in a brand in the space of health that really is very much like prom basically promoting all of the things that I, I talk about, I, I, pr promoting metabolic health, promoting fitness and promoting, I don't even going to say spirituality, but in as much as I want to promote a sense of helping people find connection to themselves, to the future, to, to, to the universe, to, to this like idea that things are going to be better than they are today. And to their family and to the community, it's really about connection in as much. Like, I think not everybody's really ready for spirituality per se, but I think we're all looking for more meaning in our lives. And so this brand that I'm building, Dr. Molly, is like really about that. And it, and it just so happens that I'm going to be working with psychedelics as well as metab metabolism, you know? So that's the story. It's a crazy story. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a very engrossing story. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it, and I think I'm just like reflecting on like a lot of, I would say a lot of people, especially folks that go into Silicon Valley, go into tech, I think they're very commercial capitalist. Like, Hey, let's get like, let's be serious. Let's, let's be very science and data driven. Let's like yeah. make things of value. Yeah. And I, I see myself and what I appreciate as I've evolved and matured and grown is that a hundred percent things you're talking about, like community working with good people and really figuring out kind of the underlying purpose of why you're even like working so hard. And I feel like if you actually find some purpose that you feel very aligned with in terms of what you're doing, like work doesn't feel like work. Exactly. And in, in some sense, like I feel like what you're describing, like you found like a mission where it's like fun, productive, you're really like self-actualizing through your work, but it's not like, yeah. hey, I'm clocking in nine to five. 
And how do we unlock that for everyone, right? Like, yeah. I think I think that's would be like transformational in terms of society because I feel like you've had to go through a lot of, I mean, like challenges and struggle and it's in soul searching to like think through and meditate and like figure out what that was. And maybe it does require that work, that that trauma, right? Like, I don't know if it's a, that's a if it was like a classic trauma, but like it was actually stressful, right? Like, yeah, Silicon Valley was hard on me, and it was good to me, but it was also very much a man's world. I'll be honest, and you know that that is life, and I was able to succeed in that world, but it was also through developing a fairly masculine sort of identity, and 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 I'm very much a woman, you know, and so there's like this reflection I had of just like realizing there was a moment I realized, wow. Like I hadn't met a single happy billionaire <laughs> and I was like, they're, none of them were happy. And like, I was like, wow, like, why do we care so much about becoming so wealthy when we really like this pursuit of happiness is actually just a pursuit of massive wealth. Like that's what really America is about is like, how do you accumulate as much wealth as possible before you die? And I was like, but, but the thing is, is like the richer people get the more problems that they have. <laughs> and I talked to them because they're my clients. And I was like, okay, there's something missing here. And I realized that, th that the other issue with becoming wealthier and more successful is that a lot of people become more and more disconnected. You, you, you trust people less. You have a smaller community around you. Like, and I was like, man, but if I, I want a bigger community around me and I want to have people all over the world that could take care of me if I needed help. And I want to have a sense of connection, you know, to something greater than myself. And so I had to look beyond the sort of surface level success markers and, you know, there's a point where I could like basically buy myself whatever clothes I wanted and whatever jewelry I wanted. And I was like, and, and the thing is like, that doesn't bring you that much more happiness. Like it's, it makes you look cool, but it doesn't really bring you more joy. And so I was really just trying to ask myself, like, what is really going to fulfill me? And so I, I met this amazing teacher who is an entrepreneur himself. And it turns out that the guy who invented Vipassana meditation learned it from another guy. And both of them were businessmen. One was Japanese, one was Indian. So like all these, and the guy, my, my teacher was this like Mexican business guy. And basically long story short is that I basically discovered that like, it turns out that if you really want to be successful and you really want to help a lot of people, you should commit your life to service of some way, whether that's products and services that, that do good for humanity, like what your company does, or, you know, offering yourself it, through developing your skills to create products that can help people. But like the whole question you should be asking yourself is what's your mission? You know, what is the mission you have? Why are you here? What's the, what's the direction you're taking your life? And I discovered that I wanted to extend health span. So I want people to live longer, healthier lives. And I want them to be higher quality of life. I want people to have higher quality of life. So I want people to age better because I don't think we should have to age with so much disease. So that's my mission. But the vision of the, of the world that I want to see is a, is a vision where men and women are equal, where Women have the same opportunities men do, where trans people have the same opportunities that, that, that you know, men or women do, and where basically people can have work that's meaningful and that, you know, they, that, that doesn't require them to have to work three or four jobs to make a living. Like, I want to see a world where health is baked into society, where like we design society so that it's easy to be healthy, not that it's hard to be healthy. And, and I ideally like support companies that create foods and products and services and supplements that are designed to help make people healthier. So I'm really lucky that like I get to be working in this space, but it took many years of, of like deep soul searching to figure this out. 
And there's actually a bunch of research you can read online. There's all this research from like Sweden, but basically I found all this work on like, how do you really define quality of life? Like, how do you really define like what, what is meaningful and purposeful work? And there's all, I actually dug into like primary literature to figure all this stuff out. (laughs) But I've also, you know, I ask myself a lot of questions every year. Like at the beginning of every year, I have this huge life review. And, you know, if you ask yourself the right questions, you'll figure out the path you're supposed to be on. But you have to consistently, you know, you have to do the work. And a lot of people just don't know what that work looks like, but it's largely self-inquiry. You know, it's like largely looking at yourself, all the good and the bad, and really asking yourself, like, if I were the highest version of myself, what would that person be doing for work? What would that person be doing? How would they be work- working? How, how, what would their ethics look like? You know, like, and that, that to me is like what guides my principles now is like, I, I have this like deep sense of karma where like, if something bad happens, if I do anything bad to someone, I'm like immediately aware that like that will come back to me very quickly. Cause like I have these like feedback loops that I've, I've been tracking. And so I have this sense of right and wrong that like really, really guides me towards what, what intuitively I think is the right decisions to make. And that's a different way of operating than I was operating in the past, which was largely based on, I don't know, like just trying to like prove myself in a very tough, you know, tough, very, very competitive culture of Silicon Valley. So I'm actually kind of glad that Silicon Valley is kind of like dispersed a bit and everyone's kind of had to like go inward for the last year because I think there was a lot of problems in tech and a lot of misery. And frankly, I think like everyone that I know that was in tech that is like working on stuff now, like they've really shifted their their work towards building things that I think are going to make the, the world better. And so I, I think that things are going to be really optimistic. I think everyone's had a bit of a soul search in the last year, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, a lot to unpack that I want, I want, to, I want to reflect and, and, and throw back at you. But one thing to, to, to start with is your self-inquiry and your self-awareness. And I, I feel like most people are scared to really ask themselves the tough questions. Yeah. And I think maybe for... I don't know what it is that that you have or that I may have or some folks that seem really self-aware have, but when you just press people, like, what do you sincerely want, right? Like, I don't think they have a really good answer. I don't think they have a sincerity uh, around their goals. It's very, like, surface level. Like, oh, I want to, like, make money. Yeah. I want, like, a prestigious job. And that's not good enough. And no. Not. It's not because it's, it's very brittle. It's 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 like external validation, not something internal, intrinsic. Did you were you always very open to self critique, self analysis? Was that a skill you learned over time? It seems like some people. I I don't know. I don't know why some people seem to be very open to it, and some people seem very resistant to it. I'm I'm curious in your practice, do you see some patterns there, or can you get people to really open up and say, hey, like I'm gonna like look at myself in its raw, brutal form and uh, think about like what I want and where, where I want to go. Well, to be honest with you, I was definitely a pain in the ass for most of my life in academics because I was always asking questions to my superiors and like challenging people. So like the, the thing is, is that I also got challenged by doing that. And in, and like, I definitely had a, I butted, I butted heads a lot in my sort of like academic career with my attendings and my, you know, just as I became an adult, I definitely wasn't always easy to deal with. I'll be honest with you. So because of that, I regularly got in trouble for something. Usually like when I was a kid, I was always in trouble for something. And usually I didn't realize it was something you were, you you could get into trouble for. I was like, well, I didn't realize that was a problem. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I think because I've like had to be fairly well disciplined throughout my life and I've made plenty of mistakes, I've had to look at myself a little bit differently. I certainly always had the like apologize after attitude for a lot of things. Yeah, I'd say that like there was definitely... <sighs> Definitely when I was leaving my residency and I was like, didn't know what I was going to do for a job. I had to really look at myself. And then I would say that it was when I started working for myself and realizing like that, like when things wouldn't work, I would ask myself why. And then I would have to like really look at myself. Oh yeah, that was your fault. Like, you know, like, so I, I had to take a lot of ownership and responsibility for my, my mistakes, I, I'd say. And I think that the thing is, is most people are not responsible like really, really deeply responsible for all their decisions. They kind of want someone else to make them for them. And so if you want to be like, first off, like if you're going to be an entrepreneur, like you have to become really responsible for all of your mistakes. And you have to be like, like this extreme ownership, you know, by Jocko Wilnick, like that book is really like life-changing because when, when I started really adopting that kind of mindset, I think something really shifted in me. And I actually got that book from an ex-boyfriend and he was like, dude, read this book. This is going to change your life. And that did make a big difference is like, shifting the mindset of like, it's uh, someone else's problem that they caused me to like, I literally create all of my problems myself and no one else causes my problems but me. Like that is like a very different attitude to have. And in doing so, like this sort of like self-inquiry stuff, like it started very external, to be honest with you. It started with external goals that I had. It started with like, what do I want to accomplish? Who do I want to be? Who do I want to hang out with? And then it became much more internal as I started realizing that like, the more I would achieve, I didn't get more satisfaction. It was like, oh yeah, I did that thing. And like, oh wow, like I'm not happier, huh? Weird. So when you start, when I realized like, like the, all the external success, like wasn't really bringing me more joy. I was like, well, there's some things missing here. So what internally do I want? So I talked to one of my friends who's this amazing spiritual woman. And she was just like, maybe you should ask yourself not what job you want, but like, how do you want to feel when you're in that job? And I was like, oh, how do I want to feel? I never ask myself how I want to feel. And like, I'm a thinker, so I don't think about how I feel, but I having to really develop the felt sense of like, oh, like I'm aiming to feel a certain way as I do this kind of job. Like that is something I try to return to as well. And like what I like to feel, I like to feel freedom, to be honest with you. And so I don't like having, I don't like working for a lot of other people. I like to work in partnership with companies, but I don't like to work for people. Like I like freedom. I really feel good when I'm in, in roles that give me autonomy and freedom. So I'd say that like, when I sat down and asked myself what my core values were, that really made a big difference too. Is like, if you don't know your core values, then you don't really know what's guiding your decisions, you know? And like, I remember reading Ray Dalio's principles but when, before it was actually a book, it was like, I put it in a binder and I was like, a PDF. I was like, it was like a yeah, PDF I had that binder, man. And I highlighted that book and I was like, I need principles too, you know? So I looked at other people who had ways of living that I could learn from and so I did a lot of that, like collecting. So I collected these questionnaires, right? And so, so I, I would basically create, you know, I think everybody should know their mission. Everyone should know what vision of the future they would like to see that their mission would help accomplish. Because ideally, collectively, we should all be, be creating a better world, right? Our goal should be not to be just living for ourselves, but to create a better future for everybody around us, because that would make the world much, much happier to live in. And so like, look at, think about the world in terms of like, what do you want to see? And then ask yourself, like, if I were to try to create, like what small role could I play in making the world that way? And like, what could you see yourself doing every day that wouldn't feel like work, you know? And to be honest with you, like my medical practice, it definitely feels like work, but it definitely doesn't feel like the kind of work that it used to feel like when I was in the hospital. Like 
totally different experience, like way different quality of life. And I mean, I am arguably not seeing like, like hundreds of patients, which makes a huge difference, but I have to admit, like, I love it so much because I love, my patients are amazing. I have the coolest people I work for. Like, like my patients really are my, like, I have to admit, like, I literally work with some of the coolest people and I wish I could tell you who they are because they're just the best, but most of them are, are, are entrepreneurs or executives or investors. And so, so these are interesting people for sure. And like to be able to have that kind of life is pretty neat. So I'd say like, know your values, know your goals in terms of knowing your goals. It's not like I want this job or I want to make this much money. Like that's, that's important. That's great. But that's just like one small piece of your goals. You can create for yourself. You can create goals spiritually. You can create goals and like, you can have emotional goals. Like I want to literally have more emotional balance. Like that can be a goal. You can have relationship goals. You can have like, I've had goals like, you know, really deep, deep in my relationships with my sisters or my parents, you know, you can have goals in your material world, but you can have also goals in like, you know, your spiritual world, like, you know, spiritual goals. Like I want to have a deep sense of fundamental well-being. Like that's something I'm, I'm seeking and I have friends who have it and I don't have that yet, but I'm going to get there. So like thinking about your goals in every facet of your life and not just like, I want to make this much money to buy a Rolex, which by the way, like I went to a Rolex dealership cause I was like going to buy a Rolex and I was like, ah, yeah, I could buy that. But like, uh, I don't really want it right now. Maybe I'll get it in like a year. Like that's cool. But like, you know, like I, it's one of those things where it's like, once you can do it, you're like, ah, do I really need that? Like it's weird. So don't focus so much on the material stuff. Like, unless it's like, I want to live in a place that has nature around it, you know, like I I'm looking for an apartment that has lots of space in the middle of LA. That's not easy to find, but I think I found it and hopefully I get it, but we'll see. I I'd say like, like being the, here's the thing. Also, I'm going to add, I've gotten really into the concept of manifestation and I know that it's got a lot of like, Oh, manifestation. It's some hippie word, but like, I was really obsessed with this word when I was in fifth grade. And I was like, I was reading this book by Michael Crichton, this amazing doctor who was an amazing writer who just is just, I just wish he was still alive so I could have met him. But he was one of my heroes. And I read this book called Sphere. And I remember reading this word manifest. And I was like, what does manifest mean? I don't understand that word. And then I realized that like manifestation is literally the, uh, the way of taking a visualized idea, a concrete, clear idea and bringing it into reality right? Like that is a practice that I, I do regularly. Every two weeks I have intentions that I set with the cycles of the moon where I like bring in things or I remove things from my life. And I, I keep track of my goals that way. And like manifestation is really powerful when you have very, when you have clarity on what you want. So the way you get clarity is you actually ask yourself all these questions because otherwise you're kind of flying blind and then your life just happens to you. And like your life doesn't just have to happen to you. You can literally create the existence that you want out of your mind. But there's a bunch of things that can limit you. Obviously, like there is real life. You, you really should you try to set realistic goals, not like super crazy goals that are like totally out of your reach, but like be realistic about what you can accomplish. And then like when you set enough goals in enough areas and they start to come to you, like I really wanted an e-bike and I didn't know what kind of e-bike or when, but I ended up having this meeting with this guy this summer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, the only problem with living in the Midwest is like all my stuff's at my parents' house right now. And I, all these companies keep sending me stuff and I'm like about to move and I have to move all this crap. And this guy's like, well, you're about to get another thing. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm going to send you, you're going to get an e-bike. And I'm like, wait, why are you sending me an e-bike? He's like, cause I'm obsessed with them and you should have one. And I was like, awesome. So I ended up getting this e-bike and I was like, whoa, I went through my list of things I was trying to manifest. And I was like, that's weird. 
that was on the list. I, and that doesn't usually happen that way. But when that does happen, I'm like, I love when that happens. It's so fun. So yeah, you never know what you're going to Like, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I empathize with that point where if you have really good clarity and a vision of what you want to achieve, it's whether like there's some like woo woo, like way you're actually manifesting. Like, I don't necessarily think that that is, you know, how this stuff works, but I think just having a clarity of what you want and having the confidence to build towards that goal. Yeah, absolutely works. Right. I mean, even in sports psychology, if you just, again, this is more case study in, 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 in the field. Right. But like, People clearly like visualize them winning the championship belt, and, and then they do in the ring and all of that stuff. And I think even if it's just psychologically priming yourself, that is still very, very valuable. Absolutely. Right. So, I, so I think in some sense, like I think having some sort of manifestation practice, which basically I think, as you put it quite eloquently, just forces you to think and ask, like, like what you actually want. And I think you have clarity of what you actually want. There, there, there is some hope to actually achieving it. Right. Like if you're saying like, hey, I want to go to Mars and like that's so absurd that there's like no actual path there. You have to wait until Elon Musk solves that problem for you. But if something that's like more localized, like, hey, I want to figure out a better uh, relationship problem or a better relationship status or a job status or, 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 or a job area. Right. Like that's very, very tactical for you to actually execute. And this is why and I'm just going to loop back in the psychedelic piece, because this is why I really want to get t-shirts made that say Elon loves acid, even though I know I can't do that. I really want to get those shirts made because we both know that Elon Musk and Steve Jobs were psychedelic users, right? And you get some of your best ideas, clearest ideas of the things that you want to create in the world from psychedelic experiences. So I'm actually a big believer that like there is a role for psychedelics in the future to enable people to find their purpose, to, to actualize their highest potential. And it shouldn't be just for fixing sickness. Like we should be able to have the freedom to use these substances safely and carefully to create a better world for humanity. And I think it's funny that like the two most famous entrepreneurs in our culture are both publicly vocal that they have tried psychedelics. And it's like, I'm just going to leave it there because I think it's really important to like point out that like, it's funny that we've looked at these things as like dangerous to society when we wouldn't even have what we have today in some, some cases. Like if we didn't have these amazing entrepreneurs who had these clear ideas of what they wanted to create. And then they were able to galvanize people through their reality distortion fields towards creating that reality. So like, this is, this is what manifestation is about. It's about really coming up with this idea and whether you're an entrepreneur or an individual, whether you're building a company that has its own vision and, you know, and its own KOLs it wants to accomplish, right? Or um, K, uh, what are they called? Key? OKRs. OKRs. OKRs, key right? results. Yeah. So like, there's like, OKRs are like- into a fun value mindset. It's like the same thing, but for the, if, but an individual, on an individual level. So like, it's like whether you're building a company or an entity or your own life, it's really good to have a sense of purpose. It's really good to have a sense of where you're going and why you're going there. And oftentimes, like you can get other people recruited to follow you if your vision is strong enough and if your mission is strong enough. And if you have, you know, the right sort of leadership capacity, you can like attract resources to yourself to make that happen. So it really, to me, is like, I'm, I'm just excited because I think the future is going to be so beautiful and bright. And I, I think it sucks right now for a lot of people, but I'm just like, 
I mean, we're going to have like free energy available in our lifetime. Like no question. I think, I I really think we're going to get away from fossil fuels. I think we're going to have green energy that's going to be pure and free. And I think it's going to transform life on this planet. Sign me up for that. So like you've obviously had good success, both with meditation and psychedelics. I'm curious from uh, whether it's a, a personal opinion or we have evidence here is exogenous psychedelics required for that kind of like clarity or can you meditate your way there is it a shortcut are they duplicative states are they synergistic states do they offer different states i mean i think it's just like interesting from a because people talk about this notion of enlightenment or flow i think there's a very different english like word choices for a lot of i would say related if not identical experiences curious to hear your thoughts on unpacking flow states, enlightenment states, meditation, psychedelics, are they all related, un- unrelated? How do, how do you, how do you uh, structure I this? I think they're all very much inter- interrelated for sure. So, you know, like when you think about, when I think about flow, I think about like being actively involved in something that I'm doing, right? Whereas when I think of meditation, I actually think about like this very much inward orientation, right? When I don't, when I think about flow, I don't really think about closing my eyes and being alone, right? I think about like skiing or like having like an amazing podcast with somebody that I'm really just on a roll with. But I think that like, you know, what we're learning is that we're actually developing tons and tons of tools to be able to actually identify what's going on in the brain. So like, for example, I don't know if you've ever heard of this thing called orgasmic meditation, but they said they studied women with fMRI while they were doing this type of meditation. And they found it to be remarkably similar to like the second lowest dose of psilocybin given to people during the uh, most recent trials. And so I was like, okay, so that's interesting, right? Like this is a type of meditation that involves sexual stimulation and it brings you to a similar mind state that the drug itself does, but not as high of a dose. So having done a ton of meditation in the last year, I have to say that definitely like psychedelics and meditation are different in that like you can absolutely hallucinate when you're meditating. Like I've done, a, I've done at least 10 different kinds of meditation in my life. And there is very, there are actually types of meditation that are designed to actually drop. Like you, they're actually designed for you to do like a bit of time travel. Like you can literally t- travel through your brain and like see phases of your life. Like you can literally, like I walked into a bedroom like I literally walked into like a closet of the basement of my grandmother that like had all these clothes. And I was like walking through the clothes in this meditation. It was a very crystal clear, very hallucinogenic experience, totally drug-free. So that's from this, this very rare, very quiet school in Berkeley called Claire Vision Institute. If anyone wants to learn about the inner space technique, super hippie stuff that like, I was like, what is this stuff? I didn't expect this, but I went to one of those meditation retreats and I had like nine at least nine years of therapy in nine days. It was crazy. So you can get the thing. I think they all have in common is that like meditation and psychedelics and flow states, like they're all transformations of your consciousness and they're all moving you away from this default programming of like the conscious experience of being actively involved in your life and like moving you into a different way of your brain working. So they're all useful, right? They're all beneficial in different ways. Like you know, flow states can enhance performance, can can bring you more joy and satisfaction in your job. Meditation can deeply help you manage intensely challenging emotions and really widen that space between perception and reaction. 
And psychedelics can do all sorts of stuff. They can reprogram your brain with PTSD. They can help you heal from trauma. They can help you create, you know, they can help you come up with massively cool ideas for things that you want to do in your life. There's all sorts of stuff that these things can do, but they all, the thing they all have in common is they transform your consciousness. So the cool thing I learned from meditating really hard for like 10 days is that when you start to really move away from like this inner voice, that's constantly talking and you actually let your brain completely go silent, some really magical stuff can happen. And you can achieve what's called a state of Samadhi, which they talk about in religious texts. And it's literally like, it's like the most beautiful, just like literally like most beautiful mystical experience you can imagine where you're like, it's pure Nirvana. Like you're literally like, it's just, I can't even barely describe how beautiful it is. It's just so amazing. And it's like very fleeting, right? This thing doesn't last forever, but it takes a lot of work to get there. Now I've also experienced, you know, you know, if if you read about things like 5-MeO-DMT, you can basically hit that exact experience without having to do 10 days of meditation. Now, not everybody actually has that. You can't predict it. Some people have the most, some people have, some people have the most frightening experience of their lives when they do 5-MeO-DMT. So I really wouldn't recommend going out and just trying it because it's easily the most potent psychedelic known to man and it could really screw you up if you're not prepared. So caveat, disclaimer, don't go drop a bunch of drugs that you don't know about. But that being said, 5-MeO is like this nirvana type experience where you're just like absolutely like it, it's like staring at the face of God and in infinite intelligence and beauty. It's so awe-inspiring that you can barely handle it. Like that is an insane experience to have. You should not do that alone. You should definitely, definitely not go do that right now because you can really, like, I know people who've, who've had like, you know, here's one thing they all have in common too, by the way, you can definitely have a psychotic break with psychedelics and meditation alone or together. Like they transformation of consciousness can in people who are unstable to begin with, or predisposed for psychosis, it can unlock an unfortunate reality, which is that some people don't regain their grounding. So this is why I'm like such a vocal advocate for education on psychedelics, because I want people to not just like, oh, I heard Dr. Molly talk about psychedelics on a podcast. I should go try them. No, I want you to go read a bunch of books on them. I want you to go talk to a bunch of people. I want you to do your homework. I want you to like really know what you're doing And I want you to ideally like be incredibly careful and safe before you hurt yourself because you can actually change your entire brain's functioning for So it's a really amazing tool, these things, but they are also very much, you know, they're powerful and they can, when you transform your consciousness, you got to make sure that you going into that state, like they're not specific, they're they're very much non-specific amplifiers, psychedelics are. So if you go into that state, very anxious and very much unhinged, it can make you even worse. So that's why I'm always like talking about the benefits, but also talking about, eh, they're still risky. There's still a bunch of problems with them. MDMA can, you know, cause, you know, there, there's definitely side effects. Like you, if a woman is trying to get pregnant or she, she's nursing, she should be, definitely not take MDMA. Ketamine can induce high blood pressure. You could have, you know, all sorts of problems with that if you have, you know, high blood pressure to begin with. So there's a lot of things that you need to know about before you use these things. But the one thing I will say is that, they're both powerful, powerful tools in the toolbox of transforming your consciousness. And I think a lot of people are really at, they're just like confused. Like, why are they here? You know? And there's a lot of people killing themselves. And the reason why a lot of people kill themselves, unfortunately, is because they don't, they don't have, they don't have a reason to live. And that's part of why I'm so big on purpose, because like, what's the point of having health if you don't have a reason to live, right? Like, 
you know, like, so what we do need to think about in society as we move forward is we have to figure out how to give people more purpose. So we have to create better jobs. So we need more entrepreneurs and we need more innovators. We need more thinkers like Steve Jobs and like Elon Musk. We need more thinkers who can come up with solutions for society's biggest problems. And we need, you know, media personalities to like educate people properly so that people don't hurt themselves as the world is changing so much. Well, well said. I mean, yeah, I, I, it just feels like with existing capitalism, people feel like cogs within this overall, just this profit motive. And I think that's not very inspiring. So I think just figuring out how to, you know, re, rehumanize a lot of like the day-to-day existence for people, I think would do a lot of good. And I think that's an interesting segue. Like, obviously you brought up Silicon Valley. It's been a big part of both of our lives. I would love to just unpack that a little bit more. I mean, I decamped over to Miami. Definitely there's a dispersion around Bay Area, San Francisco during the pandemic. Um, you talked about the competitive nature. What are your key critiques and how would you solve them? I mean, maybe that's too broad of a question, but. I mean, no, I can, I can answer that. I mean, the first is, is like my friend, Jenny Stefanati, she's like really big on like new forms of capitalism, right? Like how do we actually ask ourselves, how do we create a motive for people to produce value that also isn't just about monetary value, but actually is like, how do we create companies that really care about people? You know, like how do we create leaders that create companies that care about people and that care about people's well-being? And I've, I've been lucky to spend time with people in the mid- Midwest, some um, entrepreneurs out here. And I think we need to like, we actually need to like, not be so obsessed with the valuations of the companies, but really ask ourselves, like, are these companies really helping humanity solve major problems? And like, I think we need to ask, I mean, we're, we're at a reckoning right now because this stock market is so frothy. Like it is about to blow up in our faces if we're not careful. <laughs> and at the same time, like, I don't know, like maybe we need this. Like I, it's hard to, it's hard to ask all, like to really answer this because it is a broad question. But I think the first thing that, that society needs to do is like entrepreneurs need to really deeply care about the people that they serve. And it should not be all about them because I think that what we, what we're seeing is like, you know, like this, this concentration of wealth at the very, very top to like the detriment of like millions upon millions of people. It doesn't make society very fun to live in because when you're really wealthy and you have to be afraid of everyone taking your stuff from you and like breaking into your house, like it's not really fun anymore. You know, like it would be really nice if like society could flourish like a garden. And yes, of course, there may be like some plants that are stronger and bigger and have more fruit, but the garden should get to coexist with itself, right? Like it shouldn't be a bunch of, you know, overrun with weeds, right? Like we need to see society as this thing that we, we create and we, we cultivate and, and like these companies as well should be thought of as like, how do I cultivate a, an environment for people to flourish? And that is a question that everyone should be asking as they build companies and as they, as they go to their, you know, their, their, their bosses and, and like, you know, if somebody's really struggling to make ends meet, like, you know, there, there should be a way for people to like have this discussion with their boss. Like, is there upward mobility? So I think, I don't know the answer. I mean, the answer is, is for Silicon Valley specifically, I'll be honest with you. So San Francisco became unlivable and that happened when it became homogenized and it became homogenized because everyone from tech wanted to live there and it pushed everybody out who was, who was part of the service industry. Right. So the food got too expensive. Chefs couldn't afford to, to work there. And the streets were overrun with homeless people. 
And we didn't know how to put them in homes, even though there was tons of empty places to live all over San Francisco that had been vacant for years. So these people were were on the street in, in encampments. And the police couldn't handle the amount of crime on the street. So they decided to, to, to take certain things that were felonies and make them misdemeanors. And so it made it very easy for criminals to continue to, to cause havoc in, in, all over San Francisco, making it even more unlivable. So now we ended up with Gotham City, right? And we didn't take any lessons from New York. You know, I, I think, I mean, I'm going to speak about San Francisco specifically because I think there's probably some listeners here that are from San Francisco. Like we kept our heads down and we focused on our work and we didn't look at the world around us that was changing. So like we all living, who are all living in San Francisco, we're working in tech, who are out there for the gold rush, right? Like we all really didn't do our job at helping to solve the problems in that community and that society. We kind of just kept our heads down. So if there's anything that we can do, those of us who left San Francisco, or maybe we're still there who work in tech is we all need to find a way to actually provide some form of service to our communities around us and not just focus on the products and services that we're making. So what does that look like, right? Like we need to get involved with politics. We need to get involved with local politics. We need to get involved with community and, and, and volunteering. Like a lot of people, just all they did was focus on work. And the problem is, is that that created a culture where we didn't care what happened on the outside world. And so because of that, it became absolutely unlivable, which is a huge sadness, right? Like at the, at the same time, we voted in people who were in charge, who frankly did a terrible job in politics and we should have voted them out. But San Francisco's politics is extremely liberal. And unfortunately, I think it needed a few more moderate people to make things work. So I'm like very much a moderate and I'm like not a super, you know, I'm not Republican or Democrat. I'm like very much a moderate and like center. But I feel like we didn't do our, we didn't do our job as community members in in San Francisco. And because of that, we let our streets become completely unlivable and overrun with, with, you know, drug, 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 drug addiction, frankly. So what we can do is we can all play a bigger role in our communities and we can all try to try to change policy. Like, you know, what change San Francisco is if San Francisco and Berkeley and Oakland and Richmond and Marin and Palo Alto and all of these cities came together as like New York city, right? Like New York city has like this one central governance of like all these boroughs. Well, we could do that in San Francisco Bay area. And if we did that, then there would be centralized government, there would be centralized policy, and it would permeate all the decision-making. And it wouldn't be each little local government trying to do its best, trying to solve these massive problems that are affecting the entire area. So I think that there, that's one of the solutions that we can think about. And I think um, there's there's a lot more that we can all do. And what I love about what's happening in Miami right now is like the mayor of Miami is like asking all these tech people to come. And he's like, hey, I want you to get involved with helping us shape this city. Like that's leadership. You know, we, that never happened in San Francisco. And it and honestly, like, you know, the, these big funders of, of social programs, like, like, I know there was like 300 million that went in to try to fight homelessness. Well, maybe they should show us where that went, where that went, because what if we put 300 million into actually creating homes for homeless people? Like the reason why homelessness isn't fixable by programs like that is because homelessness is only going to be fixed by putting people into homes and giving them meaningful work without meaningful work and a home. You're not going to succeed at fixing homelessness. So Anyway, I'm off my soapbox, no, but that's it's, the it's, answer. Yeah, again, I think a, a very solid diagnosis. I mean, I think this is a conversation that I think all, all of us in San Francisco or used to be in San Francisco have had in our private 
you know, living rooms. And like, you cannot vocalize this because of the homogeneity and like the very, very left government, right? Like, and I think now, like, I, I think, I think SF is broken. I, I oh my think- God, they're trying to take Lincoln off of like signs, like Lincoln? Like he fought for the slaves. Like, why are you trying to take his name off of buildings? Like what the hell, Francisco? Like what the hell? Yeah, that's like one like headline out of the onion. And then I think it's like at, at a point where they're criticizing billionaires for like donating money for hospitals and and, and I know. Give me a break. Or, or it's it's so broken now. Yeah. It's honestly like it's the, the I know I don't know if LA is any better. I'm going to go find out, but I do worry about this my like my safety in these big cities. And it's like part of me is like, oh man, like how how much longer can I last in this kind of environment where I don't feel safe walking around? And like that generalized unsafety in the streets is actually bad for human health. And it actually induce like your your brain has to be on alarm state. It has to be like, unless it's sent the signals that it's safe, it thinks that there's something always dangerous. So the moment you walk outside in San Francisco, you don't know if someone's gonna attack you. And like, I remember reading about this guy who like had a restaurant. In San That's Francisco. the truth. And that, that is the truth. I, yeah. And, and, it, and I think people like dismiss it or just like say, no, you're just, you're just BSing. That is honestly the truth. Like you are on edge. And I think if you, if people that like, don't believe it should just walk around San Francisco right now. Like everyone that has lived there has a horror story that's happened to themselves or a friend. I know. I know women who've been attacked. I know like people who've been mugged. I know people who've had, I, I mean, I don't know a guy who got literally like, he got like knifed. Like, like I know a guy who got bit like by a homeless guy. Like what the hell? That is like a zombie. Yeah. A, it's a, that's a zombie apocalypse. And it doesn't have to be this way, but we have a problem. And like, I mean, we've got, it's not just us. I mean, look at Texas and the border. I mean, like there's a lot of problems all over the world. Right. So the real answer, to be honest with you, is like education, education, education. The more we can educate everyone in the world, the better off humanity will be because we'll stop overproducing people and we'll stop overpopulating the world. <laughs> but we do need to make more Americans because we're running out of America. And, and I think going back to the point, also the community aspect as well, right? I, I think there's so many factions that don't even care. They slash hate each other. And I think what Mayor Francis, yeah, I mean, he didn't. Like I had, I was able to sit down with them and, and, and have a conversation and he just like wants to help and, and is very welcoming. And it's like, even that very small gesture of like a politician just trying to like make a community, I think is very, very meaningful because like he's attracting people that want to build, be a part of a community and want to contribute back in the ecosystem where it felt like people were disincentivized to actually contribute into the, into the neighborhood or the community. Where in you know other jurisdictions, people are like, yes, like come build with us, make everyone, make the, our entire town better, make our entire city better. So that's like a positive catalyst and a positive, and I think like that optimism versus I think a very pessimistic mindset that's happening in in, in some of our previous homes. I know, I know. I mean, yeah, it's 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 tough, but the cool thing is, is that he's a pretty young mayor, right? Like he doesn't look very old. Like he looks pretty young. So yeah, good- I think yeah, I think he's young children. So yeah, he's probably in his forties. So the good news is, is that our generation is soon going to be in charge. (laughs) And that means we get to make the rules. That means we get to change the laws. That means we get to be the ones running for office. That means we get to be the ones kicking out these, no offense, a lot of these asshole politicians that are just like, really, they got to go. And everyone agrees with you. Everyone's nodding. (laughs) I know, right? It's like, we're, it's our, it's up to us next. And what I'm trying to figure out is how do we get the Gen Z 
off the ledge because so many of these Gen Z are like really, really miserable because they're, they're like the more the world's more competitive than ever. They're more stressed out than ever. They're all anxious. They're all on their phones too much. Like we do need to figure out how to like we need to bring more leadership into the media that like communicates to young people like it's going to be OK. Like everything's going to get better. We're going to be part of this solution and the world can be a different place for us and for our kids. 100%. So let me just do a hard pivot on the conversation. I do want to cover fasting. Um, I think that's uh, like a, a big, obviously, you're, you know, a, 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 an experienced practitioner, clinician that, that, you know, potentially prescribes it or monitors it. And you mentioned that your, your views and have evolved over time, especially as it relates to women. And I think it's like a very common topic and FAQ that we get uh, asked all the time as well, because there's obviously very different baselines and goals with men and women and other, you know, metabolic health statuses and, and, and goals. So I made this sort of decision to try fasting out when I was dating this guy who was obsessed with fasting. And I was like, cool, I'm going to like learn about fasting. And I, I got kind of into it. Right. But then I realized about, I mean, it was like, I, I spent about a year really digging into fasting. And honestly, I have to say that I think fasting did do a lot of good for my health. But at the same time, I noticed that fasting, when, when my stress levels started to really rise and I knew my life was changing a lot, I, I started to notice like, oh, wow, I'm not really able to fast as much. And it's like, I can't fast as long. And I started to realize, so I started digging into the research on women's health and women's brains. And I realized that we have different biology than men. And I'm actually writing a book on biohacking for women because I'm realizing that there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done differently. So specifically for young premenopausal women and younger women, like fasting can be particularly problematic because a lot of young women are really stressed out because they have jobs, right? And a lot of women are exercising quite regularly. And so if you add too much fasting to a woman's body, when she's already doing all these things, you, it can actually disrupt her hormones. And specifically this, this kiss peptin signaling in the brain can be problematic because it can actually affect your overall hormone signaling of, am I in a famine or not? And if I'm in a famine, I need to make sure that I can keep the fuel for the babies that I've made. And so I'm going to tone, turn down my metabolism and I'm basically going to like train my metabolism to, to turn the thermostat down so I can survive and I can feed the children. And so this biological imperative of women versus men is a little bit different. And so men can get shredded when they fast. And so can women, by the way, women can certainly lose weight while fasting. And I have a lot of friends who fast that are women, but women can also derange their hormones and set themselves up for lower metabolism by doing too much fasting. So the reason why it's, it's an, it's an adaptation. So your body is going to adapt to the demands placed upon it. And when the signals are being sent to a woman, that there's not enough food available. The body is smart. The woman's body is like, great, I'm going to turn on the metabolism because that's how I keep you alive. And the problem is that now a woman can only eat like 1200 calories a day without, and, and she has thyroid dysfunction and she has, you know, cortisol dysfunction. And it's like the same thing that, that a man can do. A woman cannot always do. And so really I was like, I myself was like listening to this friend of mine who like wasn't an expert, who was definitely a man, definitely that didn't go to medical school. And I was like, well, I think that women and men are different, different reactions to fasting. And he was like, oh, I don't, I don't buy that, you know? And I was like, but I think that they do. 
And so I just kind of realized that like by reading a bunch of other people's work, like this woman, Stacey Sims has this great book called Roar. She should have her on your podcast. She's awesome. Young training athletic women are more likely to lose their period if they add too much metabolic flexibility inducing things like fasting and ketosis. So women just have to be a little bit more careful with the intensity of their dietary shifts so that they don't send these signals that either they're exercising too much, there's not enough carbs available in the environment, or they're like, you know, there's not enough food available in the environment. So this is why I've cha- I've changed things a little bit for younger women. It's easier for women when they become postmenopausal. It's like game over. You can totally do a lot more with fasting because your body is more like a man's because your hormones are a lot more like a man's. But when you're young and you're fertile, you got to be really careful because you're kind of like, you know, your garden, you want to grow the garden and you want to reproduce. So you want to make sure you be really careful with your hormones. You don't want to overstress yourself. You don't want to overtrain yourself. You don't want to overfast yourself because you got to make sure that your brain thinks that there's enough food available. Yep. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite intuitive. And I think you describe it really well for stress or for fasting is an, a stressor, which, which triggers adaptation, which for training purposes is like very, very beneficial. But if you just have too much stress stacked on top of each other, you break. So watch out for overly stressing out your body, right? Like I think sometimes when people go into biohacking, they get super gung ho, they're going to fast, eat keto, train seven, you know, and manage a super stressful job all at once. That's a lot of stress. You're going to break yourself. Exactly. So you have to think about your cup and like, are you filling this cup? Is it full? Like maybe just maybe when like, like for, for example, like exercise and fasting do a lot of the same things. So when you're exercising, you may not need to fast as much. Like I tend to do longer fasts on days where I'm not exercising. And I, I feel like people don't realize that you get a lot of the same actual molecular benefits from fasting as you do with exercise. So I used to go to like, I used to be doing like a three day fast and go to like yoga class. And I would be like so drained afterwards. And I was like, wow, maybe I was overdoing it a little tad, you know? And so I'm really just now about much more balance for women and especially athletic women who are training. It's a little bit different if you're um, sedentary. So basically um, women who are sedentary are, are like not really getting the benefits of exercise. So fasting can be a really good thing to fill, like fill you in with that, like basically replace that option. So my friends who are like really into fasting that are women, they don't exercise at all. They're sedentary all day long. And like, that's their hormetic stressor. So I would say just be much more careful if you're, if you're exercising. If, so when I was doing a lot of fasting and that I actually added too much exercise, this is like 2019 springtime that, and then I was going through all this business stress. That's when my body was just like, Oh no, you can't do this much fasting. Like your body just says no. And I had to listen to it. So now I'm in this like much, much better place, but it's like, I've had to like accept the fact and frankly through my own mistakes realize that like you know you can't do it all at the same time but i do think you can do all of them you just can't do them necessarily all at the same time yeah i mean that's also like very similar to how i've intuitively practiced my own intermittent fasting now where it's like yeah if you're working out uh you need to refuel and fuel those exercises if you're yeah and same if i am just working i can fast much longer it's 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 almost very natural to just like power through meals that I, I don't need to fuel on. So in some sense, I think that is the whole goal with fasting is to try to reset a baseline. I think where most of Americans have been is, you know, 75% metabolically or, or overweight obese, metabolically dysfunctional. Fasting is like a reasonable tool to get you a, a, to a better baseline. But once you're like reasonably healthy and have your stuff together, right? Like 
Stop being so dogmatic, right? Use it as a tool amongst every other tool in your toolkit. This is the thing. I think people don't think about it either this way. So if you think about your lifespan, right? Like there's this period of time in your life where you're growing when you're young, right? You're like growing, 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 eating all the time, growing. You can eat whatever you want. You're just growing at all this bioenergetic capacity. And then 30 hits and everyone's like, oh, weird. Things aren't working the same way. Well, your hormones are changing. And so when your hormones change, you have to accommodate, right? So as your body is naturally declining in, in thyroid hormone, as you get older, your, your metabolism is going to naturally drift down. You're not going to be able to eat as much as you ate when you were younger. This is an adaptive response to the demands of the fact that your body is trying to keep you alive, right? So the thing is, is like, if you want to, what I've learned is that like, if you want to turn down your metabolic rate, you can fast more, but if you want to turn up your metabolic rate, you can eat more, right? Like, so bodybuilders are obsessed with eating all the time because they're trying to build all this muscle. But I don't think that that's necessarily good long-term to be like obsessed with eating like six meals a day, every day for years on end. You've got to think about your body as this thing that you're maintaining. There's like a house. You're going to come in and you do renovations. And maybe you're going to do like a three month period of intense muscle building. But then you're also, you, you also don't want to be in this state of, of like anabolism forever. You don't want to be in this massive anabolic mTOR stimulus state constantly. You want to keep this balancing act when you're older between, you know, building up your body and building up that muscle and then kind of pruning away all the garbage, taking all the garbage out of the cells through fasting. So it's about this balance. And I don't think anyone's really cracked this perfectly, but I think that like, we just look at life itself, like you want to maintain your body as you get older. You want to maintain your structure. And you do that by doing repairs. And you also do that by making sure that you come in and you maintain, you maintain things. Like you build your muscle back up, right? Like So building muscle as we get older is really important. But also taking out the garbage of ourselves, inducing autophagy, you know, like doing things that we know are going to aid in cellular housekeeping, like ketosis and autophagy. These are things that we can cycle. We don't have to do them all the time. But we can do them as 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 ways to increase our our fitness and our resilience and our and our adaptive capacity. I'm just nodding along. I mean, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. So let's 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 look forward. So it sounds like a lot of projects that you're that are in the queue are, are about to come out. So what can what can you what can you tease and like what's on the roadmap for 2021? I was thinking about psychedelics and I was thinking about how most people are looking at indications that are very obvious, right? Like depression, anxiety, end of life, anxiety, PTSD, opioid abuse, all those things. And I was like, but what are people not looking at? And I was like, women's health issues. So I am partnering with a pharmaceutical company to do some development around indications for women because I think women are really underserved in this area. And I think it's just something that, you know, they should be, they should be paid, they should be paid attention to as well. So we're going to talk about it more when I can tell you more. Yeah, no, let's, let's, uh, let's have you back on because I feel like we could have, you know, another hour and a half going. So let's, let's stop it here. Yeah, just a really fun, wide ranging conversation. I think clearly a very fruitful, productive journey. I mean, through the career, but especially over the last year and a half. So it's really cool to watch you grow and evolve in solve bigger and bad, more badass problems. Um, let me know when you're in Miami. Let's, uh, oh my gosh, totally. let's actually I mean, like be able to hang out in person. Yeah. And I hear you're starting a fund with this guy, Jake. <laughs> yeah. We, we can talk about that too. I think he is another one of those people that is underestimated there. So we'll, we'll talk oh, yeah. about that as well. 
Yeah, totally. Well, I'm advising a few funds right now, so we can we can chat more about that. Awesome. <laughs> and cool. do some really cool stuff. All right. Awesome. Thanks so much, Molly. Take care. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye.